from New York, this is Democracy Now. The search warrant's reference to the Espionage Act is both symbolically and legally significant. One of three potential legal violations under consideration by the Department of Justice, it sends a strong message, namely that the Justice Department is taking this investigation to a new level, that the stakes are high, and that there is suspicion that the withholding of documents could have been damaging to the United States. The FBI's search warrant reveals former President Donald Trump's being investigated for violating the Espionage Act. Trump's calling the probe a hoax. Threats of violent backlash against the FBI are growing across the country. We'll speak with Karen Greenberg, director of the Center on National Security at Fordham University School of Law, author of Subtle Tools, The Dismantling of American Democracy from the War on Terror to Donald Trump. Then, one year ago today, the Taliban returned to power in Afghanistan, promising to bring stability after two decades of war and U.S. occupation. But the country now faces a grave humanitarian crisis and a severe rollback of women's rights. We'll raise our voices against every injustice until our last breath. We will stand against all the tyranny imposed by the Taliban on the people of Afghanistan, especially on women of Afghanistan. We'll get an update from Afghan journalist Zahra Nader, editor-in-chief of Zan Times, a new women-led outlet documenting women human rights abuses in Afghanistan. Then, renowned author Salman Rushdie is in critical condition after being stabbed at least 10 times Friday when he was about to speak at the Chautauqua Institution in New York. We'll hear from Rushdie in his own words from a 2004 speech on freedom of expression. Will we become intolerant as our enemy is intolerant? Or will we not? Will we fight with different weapons? Weapons of openness, of acceptance, and seeking to increase the dialogue between peoples rather than decrease it. Um, this is a big test. Will we become, you could say, the suits of armor that our fear makes us put on? All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The top Democrat and Republican on the Senate Intelligence Committee have made a joint request for lawmakers to be allowed to see the classified documents seized last week by the FBI during its raid of former President Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate. Democrat Mark Warner and Republican Marco Rubio made the request Sunday to the Justice Department and the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. On Friday, the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Florida unsealed and released the search warrant for the raid. The warrant revealed Trump is being investigated for three federal crimes, violating the Espionage Act, obstruction of justice and criminal handling of government records. The FBI reportedly seized 11 sets of classified documents during its search, including papers marked 
top-secret SCI, which stands for Sensitive Compartmented Information, one of the highest levels of classification. Last week, The Washington Post reported part of the FBI search focused on classified documents related to nuclear weapons. According to The New York Times, an attorney for Trump had signed a statement in June telling the Justice Department all classified material had been returned. But investigators later learned that wasn't true. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi addressed the raid on Friday. There are laws against the improper handling of, of this material. There are laws against that. And the— uh, and we have to recognize that the this this information as it is coming across and we we don't we'll know more later is highly classified well above top secret it is uh, again higher than top secret it's top secret sci it is um, it's about our national security as we are told and we'll see Donald Trump's response to the raid has shifted day by day. He's called the probe a hoax. He's claimed to have declassified all the documents at Mar-a-Lago. And he's demanded the FBI return some documents, claiming they're protected by attorney, client and executive privilege. Fallout from the FBI raid is continuing to grow across the country as Republican lawmakers denounce the FBI, with Florida Senator Rick Scott comparing the agency to the Gestapo in Nazi Germany. FBI is reportedly investigating a, quote, unprecedented number of threats against FBI agents over the past week. The FBI and the Department of Homeland Security have also issued a joint intelligence bulletin warning of violent threats against federal agents, court officials and government facilities. We'll have more on this story after headlines. Renowned Indian-British novelist Salman Rushdie is in critical condition and faces a long road to recovery after surviving an assassination attempt Friday morning in western New York. Rushdie was being introduced to the audience at a literary event at the Chautauqua Institution when a man wielding a, a knife climbed on stage and began stabbing him. The attack left Rushdie hospitalized with severed nerves in one arm, a punctured liver and other injuries that left him on a ventilator overnight Friday. Rushdie's agent, Andrew Wiley, says he's likely to lose one eye as a result of the assault. 24-year-old Hadi Matar of New Jersey was restrained by audience members and later arrested. He was arraigned Saturday, where he pleaded not guilty to charges of attempted murder and assault with a deadly weapon. Prosecutors have not yet established a motive for the attack. Salman Rushdie is one of the most highly acclaimed writers in the world today. He was forced into hiding and lived underground for many years after the late Ayatollah Khomeini of Iran issued a fatwa in 1989 calling on Muslims to assassinate Salman Rushdie over his book, The Satanic Verses. The novel portrays the Quran in an unconventional light and models one of its main characters on the Muslim prophet Muhammad. The fatwa was finally lifted in 1990. By Iran. New York Governor Kathy Hochul spoke Sunday from the Chautauqua Institution. And those who are motivated to violence because of calls from foreign leaders, even domestic leaders, calls for violence cannot be tolerated. And so we're going to continue 
And I want it out there. That a man with a knife cannot silence a man with a pen. President Biden is set to sign a sweeping $739 billion bill to address the climate crisis, reduce drug costs, and establish a 15 percent minimum tax for large corporations. On Friday, the House passed the Inflation Reduction Act on a party-line vote of 220 to 207. No Republicans supported the legislation. The White House released a video of Biden praising the bill. The American people are going to see lower prescription drug prices, lower health care costs, and lower energy costs. And big corporations are finally going to start to pay their fair share. Those that are paying zero dollars in federal income tax will now have to pay a minimum tax. And America is going to take the most aggressive action we've ever taken in confronting the climate crisis and strengthening the energy security of America. Despite and the world. Biden's high praise, many climate groups criticized the package for including major handouts to the fossil fuel industry, which were added to win the support of conservative Democratic West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, who's the largest recipient of fossil fuel industry donations in Congress. The Center for Biological Diversity described the bill as a climate suicide pact. Idaho's Supreme Court has signed off on a law outlawing nearly all forms of abortion. On Friday, justices rejected lawsuits filed by abortion care providers who sought to stop Idaho's so-called trigger law from taking effect later this month. The new law criminalizes abortions just six weeks into a pregnancy and makes it a felony to perform an abortion, with limited exceptions for cases of rape, incest or medical emergency. Idaho's abortion ban still faces a legal challenge from the Department of Justice in a federal court. Meanwhile, the Kansas Secretary of State has signed off on a hand recount of ballots cast on August 2nd, when voters overwhelmingly rejected a referendum that would have removed reproductive rights from the Kansas Constitution. The recount was requested by a private citizen who has spread baseless conspiracy theories about the 2020 election. It'll be paid for by anti-abortion activists. The recount is unlikely to change the outcome of the election, which saw Kansans affirm abortion rights by a 165,000-vote margin. China's warning the United States is, quote, playing with fire on the Taiwan question, unquote, after another U.S. congressional delegation made an unannounced trip Sunday to Taiwan to meet with the Taiwanese president. Democratic Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts is leading the delegation, which comes less than two weeks after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi became the highest-ranking U.S. official to visit Taiwan in a quarter century. Meanwhile, former U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger is warning about U.S. policy on Taiwan and Ukraine. In an interview with The Wall Street Journal, Kissinger said, quote, we are at the edge of war with Russia and China on issues which we partly created without any concept of how this is going to end or what it's supposed to lead to, Kissinger said. In Kabul, Afghanistan, members of the Taliban fired warning shots into the air and used rifle butts Saturday to beat women protesters outside the headquarters of Afghanistan's education ministry. The women had been chanting, bread, work and freedom. Protesters were demanding the Taliban end its ban on girls attending classes beyond the sixth grade, as well as a ban on women holding most government jobs or traveling alone. One year ago today, the Taliban took power of Afghanistan. According to the United Nations, 
95 percent of Afghans are going hungry in a food crisis exacerbated by the Biden administration's decision to freeze the Afghan central bank's assets. This is Dr. Mohammed Ashraf speaking from the packed malnutrition ward at a children's hospital in Kabul. It is a fact that misery and poverty is increasing in our country day by day. The higher the poverty rates, the more malnutrition cases there are. I urge the international community and other assisting organizations to help the poor people, especially those suffering from this disease, malnutrition. Israeli forces have shot dead a 21-year-old Palestinian man during a raid on his home earlier today in occupied East Jerusalem. According to Palestinian officials, Mohammed Ibrahim Sham was shot in the head at point-blank range. In related news, the U.N. High Commissioner for Human Rights, Michelle Bachelet, has expressed alarm over the number of Palestinian children killed recently by Israel. Over the past 10 days, Israeli forces have killed 19 Palestinian children, 17 in Gaza, and two in the occupied West Bank. In a statement, Michelle Bachelet said, quote, Inflicting hurt on any child during the course of conflict is deeply disturbing. The killing— and maiming of so many children this year is unconscionable, she said. In northeastern Spain, authorities ordered 1,500 people in eight villages to evacuate their homes after a large wildfire exploded in size overnight Saturday. It's Spain's 43rd large wildfire of the year. This comes as firefighters from across Europe are battling huge fires in France, where recent rains have helped bring some blazes under control. The European Forest Fire Information System reports a record pace of wildfires this year, with over 1.6 six million acres burned. Much of Europe has faced record heat this summer, with meteorologists warning the climate crisis could soon bring about the continent's worst drought in more than 500 years. Colombia's new president, Gustavo Petro, has named new commanders to head Colombia's military and police as part of a push to bring peace to the country. Petro, who is Colombia's first-ever leftist leader, said he picked commanders who had never been accused of human rights violations. The new commanders that will lead Colombia's public forces are aligned with the human security politics goals we promised and that we want to turn into a reality and evaluate in due time to know about its effectiveness, to guarantee peace, to guarantee a decrease in violence and crime, to guarantee a substantial respect towards human rights and citizens' freedoms as every democracy should. In other developments in Colombia, President Petro has taken steps to resume peace talks in Cuba with the ELN, Colombia's largest remaining guerrilla group. Meanwhile, Colombia's new vice president, Francia Marquez, was symbolically sworn in by indigenous and Afro-Colombian leaders in her hometown of Suarez on Saturday. Marquez is Colombia's first Afro-Colombian vice president. Our commitment with peace is our most important commitment. An ethnic chapter was created for the indigenous people and Afro-Colombians in the peace treaty signed by the government. I will be the person in charge of ensuring the ethnic chapter for peace will advance. 
And Sunday marked the 10th anniversary of the disappearance of Austin Tice, a freelance journalist and former U.S. Marine who was abducted in Syria August 15, 2012. At the time, he was working as a freelance journalist covering Syria's civil war. The McClatchy News Service recently reported secret negotiations have been taking place between the U.S. and Syrian governments over his possible release. On Sunday, Austin Tice's family spoke at the National Press Club in Washington. This is his sister, Megan Tice. You know, just reflecting on these last 10 years, it's amazing to think. I mean, I have two children now that have never met my brother, and just the whole is felt so deeply, and we're so ready for him to come home. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. When we come back, we look at the FBI's search warrant revealing former President Donald Trump is under investigation for violating the Espionage Act. Stay with us. Malice by the Jam. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. A search warrant made public Friday confirms federal agents removed top-secret documents when they searched former President Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate last week. The top Democrat and Republican on the Senate Intelligence Committee had made a joint request for lawmakers to be allowed to review the classified documents seized by the FBI. Democrat Mark Warner and Republican Mark Marco Rubio made the request Sunday to the Justice Department and the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. On Friday, the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Florida unsealed and released the warrant signed by the federal magistrate judge who approved the raid. The warrant revealed Trump is being investigated for three federal crimes, violating the Espionage Act, obstruction of justice, and criminal handling of government records. The FBI reportedly seized 11 sets of classified documents during its search, including documents marked as top-secret SCI, which stands for Sensitive Compartmented Information, one of the highest levels of classification. Last week, The Washington Post reported part of the FBI search focused on classified documents related to nuclear weapons. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi addressed the raid Friday. There are laws against the improper handling of, of this material. There are laws against that. And the— uh, and we have to recognize that the this this information as it is coming across and we we don't we'll know more later is highly classified well above top secret it is uh, again higher than top secret it's top secret sci it is um, it's about our national security as we are told and we'll see 
Donald Trump's respond to the FBI's search of his Mar-a-Lago estate has shifted day by day as more information comes to light. He's called the probe a hoax. He's claimed to have declassified all the documents at Mar-a-Lago. And he's demanded the FBI return some documents, claiming they're protected by attorney-client and executive privileges. Meanwhile, backlash against the FBI, especially online, is growing across the country following the search. CNN reports the FBI is investigating an unprecedented number of threats against FBI agents and property over the past week. The FBI and Department of Homeland Security has also issued a joint intelligence bulletin warning of violent threats against federal agents, court officials and government facilities. The last week, the Cincinnati FBI office was attacked. Republican Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky tweeted, quote, The Espionage Act was abused from the beginning to jail dissenters of World War I. It's long past time to repeal this egregious affront to the First Amendment. Again, those are the words of Rand Paul. For more, we're joined by Karen Greenberg, director of the Center on National Security at Fordham University School of Law, author of the book Subtle Tools, The Dismantling of American Democracy, From the War on Terror to Donald Trump and Rogue Justice, The Making of the Security State. Welcome back to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us, Karen. If you could start off by talking about this charge the investigation of espionage against former President Trump and how significant it is. Well, I think it's very significant, I think symbolically as well as legally. You know, the Espionage Act actually raises the specter of uh, crimes against the country's national defense. This part of the Espionage Act that's referred to in the warrant is not the part that's about spying, but about the handling of national defense information, in the, their words, gathering, transmitting, or losing defense information. It's illegal to remove documents related to national security from their proper place, which, as we know, is the national security, the national archives, um, if they could pose a threat to national security. So that's the big charge that gets all the headlines that was leveled against the president. But there are also—that that, that is suspected against the president. But then there are also two other issues here, and they carry higher charges, and they're very important. One is the criminal handling of government records, the destruction, alteration, or falsification of government records or documents in investigations. And it's a prison sentence that could be up to 20 years. This is the obstruction of justice charge that is referred to. And finally, there's the potential charge of making um, illegal the destruction of theft of any government document. And we've seen in the recent past use of this, for example, with Petraeus um, and, um, and sort of allegations of this with others. But Petraeus is the name that comes to mind by this. And this is punishable by three years. So these are incredibly serious charges, not just in the espionage front, but in the other possible charges. Now, he hasn't been charged. This is what just said in the warrant could be what, what they are looking for. It justifies the search legally. And we'll see what happens. So, again, he hasn't been charged, but this is what they're looking for in the documents that they took away. And remember that some of the documents they took away were um, reported to be classified. So we'll see what happens. So let's talk about the Espionage Act. We've seen evoked against um, Edward Snowden, Julian Assange, Thomas Drake, reality winner. Under the Obama administration, the Espionage Act seemed to be used to squelch dissent by whistleblowers. And now you see those on the right raising these issues. 
Right. This is one of this is sort of history turning itself on its head. Um, yes, Obama used the Espionage Act to go against whistleblowers successfully, um, more than any other president in in U.S. history in that way. But the Espionage Act, you know, started in World War One and was used primarily at the time to prosecute successfully those who opposed uh, the war, World War One, and uh, enlistment in the war. And so, and it, it's been used during the McCarthy era. It's been used, it was uh, tried to be used against Daniel Ellsberg over the Pentagon Papers. It has a long history of not um, of not really being about what it's being used for now, which is the abuse of power. This is this is the uh, suspicion: the abuse of power at the absolute highest level of government to harm the country, as opposed to these prior incidents we've referred to, which were people who were trying. Trying to leak information in order to bring to light some things that they thought and others thought uh, were um, were things that the government shouldn't be doing. And so the difference between dissent and the use of the espionage to prosecute dissent and the abuse of power in a way that that potentially harms national security, I would argue, are two very different things. And um, and again, I think the the country needs to have a discussion about this. Um, but right now, we need to handle what what happened, what those documents were about, if we can find out, um, and what the president was intending, the former president was intending by holding on to these documents. And the issue that they might be connected to nuclear secrets, what that means. Well, that means a, a number of things. One, it obviously is the sort of one of the scarier things that you could be worried about in terms of holding on to uh, classified information. It also means, though, going to the guilt of the president and what the former president and what he did was that the president has claimed he can declassify information. And we think this is going to be part of what is said by his defense team and that he could sort of take a magic wand and just declassify things there. When it comes to nuclear issues and nuclear weapons, that is not First of all, it's not necessarily the case anyway without going through a, a series of procedures and conversations and document by document um, removal of these from, you know, the, a large cache that you that you're going to turn over to the National Archives. But when it comes to nuclear uh, issues, it's actually a different standard. And the president does not have the right to um, to do this just the, the way he's claiming. And this is regulated by the Atomic Energy Act. So I think it's rather significant that they mentioned that it's been mentioned and reported that this may pertain to some nuclear uh, issues. So let's go to what Trump and his supporters are claiming, that Trump used his presidential authority to declassify all the documents in question before leaving office. Uh, this is Republican Senator Mike Rounds of South Dakota speaking on Meet the Press. I think constitutionally, back, I believe it was in 1988, there was a Supreme Court decision, U.S. Navy versus Egan, in which they actually talked about whether or not a former a president could classify and declassify. And it's never really been litigated, but it appears that a president can classify or perhaps declassify information. And if that's the case, then the question would be, and I think it will be litigated as this moves forward, whether or not that was completed while the president was in the White House at that time. 
So this is very interesting. And John Bolton, the national security advisor, said when he was national security advisor, he was never told that things were just blanketly declassified. But this issue that the president having them just meant they were declassified, taking them to Mar-a-Lago. Well, you can sort of understand from the former president's point of view why he would want to say that, because it gets him out of the more serious charges about um, mishandling classified documents, which brings, you know, um, which brings very high charges. And so I, I, I think I understand it from the point of view of the defense, but it's it's not accurate. When you declassify a document, if you want to declassify a document and you're a president, there are procedures, there are rules, there are conversations, there should be a record of that getting to the point about this willful um, misuse of, of records within this presidency. And we don't know whether there will be something in what they uh, took from Mar-a-Lago uh, last week, whether there will be something that shows documents that he went through procedures to declassify. But it's not just a, a carte blanche on declassifying a whole set of information. This is a scrutinized, articulable distinction about what should be classified and what wasn't. And so we'd have to see what those conversations were, if they took place, whether there's a record. And to this point, we, we haven't seen that. Can you talk about the verbal attacks on the FBI and the Justice Department on Trump and his allies? The attorney who represents whistleblowers, Mark Zaid, tweeted, quote, Trump, via Breitbart, released unredacted copy of property receipt containing names of FBI agents. Based on his history, this can only be interpreted as intentional to cause these special agents, one of whom I know, and their families grief um, and subject them to possible threats, Mark Zaid said. Your response, Karen Greenberg? You know, my response is that uh, this is just a replay on a different level in a different arena of January 6th. This is the call to violence on behalf of the former president um, and his treatment this time under the law. Um, and it's a convergence of many things that have been going on in this country for a, a long time. So we now know the narrative. We now see how it plays out. And it is very serious and it is very dangerous. And this is a pivotal moment. Either as a country, we know and how to handle such threats or we don't. And that includes how we apply the Espionage Act, how we use our courts, how we protect our law enforcement. And, and this is a pivotal moment, and, and it matters how this is resolved. It just can't keep going on that, um, that the use of the courts, the use of the law, the reliance on the, um, on the rule of law is countered by violence that refuses to accept it. And what about the New York Times reporting this weekend that a Trump lawyer had uh, written to the Justice Department saying that all classified documents had been handed over, when in fact uh, it's clear they hadn't? Right. So, again, this goes to something that we've been seeing throughout the January 6th investigation and elsewhere, which is sort of a willful a willful use of, you want to call it disinformation, of lying, of distorting the record. And it's going to take a long time to put together this story of what actually went on with, with these documents that were kept at Mar-a-Lago. It's all part of a larger story, which is what went on inside the Trump administration, what's fact and what's fiction. 
and um, and what that means. And this is one of the most important things about these records that we sort of minimize because we're thinking about the guilt or innocence of the former president, which is that we preserve records for a reason. We preserve them, yes, so that we can understand guilt or innocence, but we also preserve them so that we know what happened in our country, so that we have the historical record, so that we know how to go forward should we decide to uh, take steps towards legislation that will prevent any of this from happening again in the future. So it's not not a minor uh, point, and, and we're going to need to pay attention to this. And what about many commentators noting that the laws in the warrant, like the Espionage Act, don't deal with classification? Um, this would be—would sort of undercut Trump's arguments around classification or whether they were declassified. Yes and no, um, because the classification issue is going to come up, we think, in any kind of investigation going forward. So, yes, you could try to separate it out. But when you're talking about national defense information, whether or not it was classified is going to make a difference. And the fact that there are classified uh, documents, whether or not they go after it on that specific point, which I think they will, um, is what is involved with the, the issue of did he do things that could have potentially harmed national security. So the classification issue just sheds a brighter light on that, you know, basic issue, fundamental issue in this case. As we wrap up, Karen Greenberg, what are you most interested in finding out? And are you concerned about an overall backlash? I'm always concerned about an overall backlash. I don't think we can worry about it. I think we have to go forward and really find out what happened. What, When you ask about what's the most concern, we need to know what these documents were. And, and we're not going to know all of it. Some of it's going to have to be classified. Um, but essentially what these documents were, what countries, if any other countries, were involved um, or named in these documents, what these documents addressed. Um, and we really need to understand what, try to understand what President, former President Trump intended to do with this material. Why did he keep it? Was it to cover up um, the crimes from the past um, or worries about being uh, allegations that address the past? Or was it information that could have been weaponized for other purposes? We have no idea, but this is what we need to know in coming days. Well, Karen Greenberg, I want to thank you for being with us, director of the Center on National Security at Fordham University School of Law. Uh, her most recent book, Subtle Tools, The Dismantling of American Democracy from the War on Terror to Donald Trump. This is Democracy Now! When we come back, one year ago today, the Taliban returned to power in Afghanistan, promising to bring stability after two decades of war and occupation. Uh, we'll get an update from Afghan journalist Zahra Nader, uh, editor-in-chief of Zan Times, running a new women-led news outlet documenting human rights issues in Afghanistan. Stay with us. Shadwala, cha khola ta. 
Mother by Dia. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Today, August 15th, marks the first anniversary of the return of the Taliban to power in Afghanistan. The Taliban government promised peace and stability to a country wracked by two decades of war and U.S. occupation. But Afghanistan is now instead facing a grave humanitarian crisis, perhaps the worst in the world. According to the United Nations, nearly 95 percent of Afghans are going hungry. This is the mother of a 10-month-old child suffering severe malnutrition. We feel depressed. Myself, his father, his sisters, we all feel very sad. My husband even said he wants to go to Iran to look for work, because he feels ashamed that he can't afford to buy him medicine or milk. He said, my son is dying in front of my eyes, but I am not capable of doing anything. This comes as women now reportedly face harsher restrictions in Afghanistan than anywhere else in the world. A piece published by the Zan Times, a new women-led news outlet documenting human rights issues in Afghanistan, reflects on one year since the Taliban took power in Afghanistan. Quote, As we write this, an estimated 20 million girls and women have lost their human rights under a malocracy that believes in the inherent superiority of one sex over all others, determined to institutionalize rabid, violent sexism. In their second week in power, they ordered women to stay home, and their second month in power. They banned teenage girls from schools, dismantled all systems of support for women and girls, forbade their protests, and denied their rights to social and political participation. In their fourth month, they denounced the autonomy of all women and girls, including the right to travel, unless accompanied by a close male relative, eight months into their rule. Women and girls lost the right to choose their clothes and were ordered to cover their faces in public, unquote. Despite the repression and violence, Afghan women have continued to protest for their rights. This is an Afghan woman's rights advocate. We'll raise our voices against every injustice until our last breath. We will stand against all the tyranny imposed by the Taliban on the people of Afghanistan, especially on women of Afghanistan. Under the Taliban's rule, most Afghan girls can no longer attend secondary school. This is an Afghan university student. The big difference we see in our life is that all the girls' schools are banned. We have not studied for one year, and this is hard. We demand the Taliban to allow us to continue our education and resume our studies next year. And the other change I see is the weaker economy of the country. This comes as LGBTQ people in Afghanistan have also faced growing violence and targeting since the Taliban took over the country. Human Rights Watch documented some of their stories in a report published in January. Taliban officers called 20-year-old drummer an anti gaslar as he passed through a Taliban checkpoint. He was taken away by men who raped and beat him for hours. They told him... From now on, any time we want to be able to find you, we will, and we will do whatever we want with you. Brushna's parents protected her from the extended family when they learned she was a lesbian. But when the Afghan government fell, her uncle and cousins joined the Taliban and said they would kill her if her father would end. If you're not going to do this, we will do it. We have the authority. The family forced Brushna to marry a man. He beats her regularly and will not let her leave the house because she is a lesbian. 
For more, we're joined in Toronto, Canada, by Zahra Nader, a freelance Afghan journalist who was formerly a reporter for The New York Times in Kabul, now based in Toronto. She's the now editor-in-chief of Zan Times, a new women-led outlet documenting human rights issues in Afghanistan. Zahra, welcome back to Democracy Now! Uh, your reflections on this first anniversary of the Taliban uh, taking—regaining power in Afghanistan after two years of U.S. war and occupation. Thank you, Amy, for having me, giving me this opportunity to be here and uh, talk about the anniversary. Now you know that this is uh, 365 days that women and girls in Afghanistan have lost their rights to basically be human, live as a human, and participate in, uh, in, a, so uh, in a society and have their basic human rights. And this is not only the situation of women, because mostly when we think about the Taliban, we ignore that this situation is not only the situation, the hardship and the restriction the Taliban are bringing in the whole population of the country. That's why we did a story. We went to the all um, sort of started talking to different people in different walks of life, asking them, how was your year? You know, how did the past year pass? And we felt that Everybody is desperate, and men and women are feeling hopeless, feeling desperate, and see no hope for the future if the Taliban is going to stay in power. And that is because the Taliban are very narrow-minded, a very, uh, as we call it, uh, they, they are ruling as a mullocracy. They believe that mullahs uh, are the, the basically the representative of God on the earth, and they are the choose how the people should work, should dress, should basically run their life and even wore their clothes as they wish uh, they should do it. And as you said in your report, uh, more than half of Afghanistan population are facing hunger, and this is directly driven from the actions of the Taliban. You know, when women are not—women are half of the uh, population—when they cannot function in the economy, when they cannot take their role, they cannot participate, half of the economy, half of the society is by, by itself uh, paralyzed, and how the other half can really function. For example, we talked to a, a woman, she said, when the Taliban asking a woman to do, to not to do not go out without a mahram. They also asking men to do not to do not go to work and have their and accompany their wives uh, or their sister or their mothers outside. And how the economy can function like this when there is no job, when there is no um, ability, when people cannot earn their living. Can you talk about the U.S. war and occupation and how that relates to what we're seeing today with the Taliban crackdown? Uh, I think that's a very good question, because we, um, when we talk about the U.S., it seems that it's been framed that we are asking the U.S. to stay in Afghanistan or to support the human rights, uh, rights of women in Afghanistan. But we have to look back at history, that we did not get here alone, that what, what we are leaving is not the making of our own. We did not make the decision to live under the Taliban. We did not make it. It was the U.S. and its allies that sort of bring us to here we are today. If we look back in the 1980s, when, the, when we had the Russian occupation or the Soviet, sorry, the Soviet occupation in Afghanistan. Uh, at that time, we know there was Cold War, and the U.S. and its allies were supporting the fundamentalist Islamists in power and giving them weapons and money. 
And when the, when the Russia left Afghanistan, and the U.S. Um, and its allies also left Afghanistan, and the extremist, Islamist, and fundamentalist forces that they brought to power, that they give weapons, that they give money, they came and dominate our society, and they became the one ruling over the society for the past 40 uh, decades. And what we are seeing today is the remaining of that history. We are living that history, and once again, we are repeatedly, the history is being repeated for Afghan people once, once in time. And the, the problem is that, unfortunately, we were not the one making this decision all the past years. And this, the situation we are seeing is not of our own making. We did not, the people of Afghanistan did not make this, this decision, and they did not choose the Taliban. How did you end up in Canada, Zahra? And how is your family doing, if you want to address that? Uh, I think when I came here, I was uh, earlier, like uh, five years ago, I came to Canada. Um, I have a son. Um, and uh, when I grew up, I grew up in Afghanistan. Uh, the first time Taliban were around, I was a child. And I was a refugee in Iran. And, and that experience was very harsh on me because I wasn't able to go to school. And I still carry that trauma with myself when I remember how I was deprived of the right to education. And that's why I am burning from inside to see millions of girls in Afghanistan are not allowed to get to be able to get the education, the very basic human rights. I came to Canada to give my son that chance, and also because Afghanistan was becoming more insecure by days. And um, I was um, doing a PhD in women and gender studies, and I was trying to look into uh, Afghan women's political history. Um, and... As I looked that Afghanistan fall to the Taliban, I was not able to sort of pull myself together. We were all in shock because that was—I was planning for my home. I was planning to return to Afghanistan and be able to teach in Kabul University. That was my plan for the future. But now I see that plan is gone, like millions of other people in Afghanistan whose, whose hope, whose uh, aspiration for future is gone under the Taliban. And this is not the situation that we chose. And my family and everybody in Afghanistan and everybody has root in Afghanistan are affected by this situation, and uh, they are very desperate. And um, the reason that when you are a journalist, when you speak out um, against the Taliban's atrocities, there's always a fear that the Taliban is on your back. And uh, I know that people, journalists who are speaking up, the activists and the women um, protesters, the women activists, all of them, their family, and everybody is at danger. But we have to try our best. We have to try to, to at least speak our truth, to be able to say what we envision, what we want, and that is right for everybody else. We want a future that we also can live humanly in our society, be able to have all the human rights that we deserve. And this is not the situation that we deserve. No, people of Afghanistan do not deserve the situation. I want to turn to an excerpt from a newly released undercover investigation into the Taliban crackdown on women by a British-Iranian documentary producer and PBS frontline correspondent Ramida Navai. She went to Afghanistan, spoke to women who said they were being punished by the Taliban regime for, quote, moral crimes or traveling while not accompanied by male chaperones. Ramida Navai also questioned the deputy spokesman for Afghanistan's Taliban-run government, Bilal Karimi. 
I've spoken to young women who told me that when they were arrested, Taliban officers used tasers to electrocute them. Many people may make such a claim. However, they may have other motives. These are baseless claims. I've also spoken to former female prisoners who've said that some prisoners were told if they married Talibs, they would be released. Will you investigate that? I won't comment on that. It's completely baseless. I've spoken to some families who've told me that Talibs are forcefully marrying women and girls. Why is this happening? We tell everyone that you must follow Islamic standards. We will never allow our people to commit such indecent acts. Other countries should not impose to us what is good for them. We have our own culture, interests and values. The international community must allow us to build our own government. That's the deputy spokesperson for Afghanistan's Taliban government, uh, Bilal Karimi, uh, speaking in a PBS documentary called Afghanistan Undercover. Zahar Nader, your response? Uh, as you say, the Taliban, they, from, from the time that they, you know, they never um, accept the truth. We have, for the past year, there are several, several dozens of reports from international organizations like UN, like Human Rights Watch. The Taliban, what the, the Taliban response to them were like, this is all baseless claims. This is all not true. The only thing that they want to say is that they want the whole world to believe that the Taliban are telling the truth and everybody else is trying to lie. And I want to very much emphasize that whatever the Taliban are saying is not acceptable. This We know this has been documented for very long. And if we continue to air the Taliban and if we continue to give platform to Taliban to speak, we are sort of um, taking part in the operation of women in Afghanistan because we know the Taliban are actively, systematically erasing women from society. And if we give them platform, it means that we are ignoring the voices of the women who are telling that the Taliban are suppressing them. The Taliban are forcefully disappearing. The Taliban are killing them. And there is so many atrocities that happening in the country. But since the media and the news, the journalists are under suppression, it is very, very hard to document most of, uh, most of those uh, criminal terrorist activities. And also, as we can see in the video, uh, in the documentary that uh, Ramita Nawai produced for PBS, uh, it has documented very rare scenes that we have never really seen. The as you say, the Taliban claim that this are not true, because that is the face the Taliban do not want anybody to see. But we know, even when the Taliban last uh, early February, when the Taliban abducted in January, when the Taliban abducted women protesters from their home, when they released their video and said that the Taliban are behind our door, the Taliban are abducting us, the Taliban spokesmen, all of their spokesmen came on the air in the BBC and other places and claim that those are lies, that we did not abduct those women. But later, the same Taliban issued their, their first confession. And we see that the Taliban, they always lie. So, Zara, I think— before we end, I wanted to ask you about the, this astonishing figure of 95 percent 
of the Afghan population is hungry right now and what you think needs to be done? I think what we need to be done is more put pressure on the Taliban, because what is causing the situation, the Taliban, their policies, is the real cause of what we are seeing in Afghanistan. They basically do not allow the economy, the society to function. When you do not allow women to take part in society, when you uh, minimize the, what men also can do, like, for example, uh, music, uh, film industry, all of them are closed. How society can function when part of the society, when half of the society, half of the population can't function at all, and the rest... Uh, the rest of the society and economy is sanctioned by what the Taliban believe the society should be and how, so, how society and how people should act. Uh, I think that is the real cause. And we need more international attention. We need more international sanction on the Taliban to force them to accept, to reverse these inhuman laws. Otherwise, we, people of Afghanistan continue to suffer under the Taliban. Zahra Nader, we want to thank you for being with us, freelance Afghan journalist, editor-in-chief of Zan Times, a new women-led news outlet documenting human rights issues in Afghanistan. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. As we end the show today with the words of the acclaimed novelist Salman Rushdie. Indian-British writer, in critical condition after he survived an assassination attempt on Friday. Um, he was knifed ten times at least as he was about to speak at a literary event at the Chautauqua Institution, when a man wielding a knife climbed on stage and began stabbing him. The attack left him hospitalized with severed nerves in one arm, punctured liver, other injuries that left him on a ventilator overnight. Rushdie's agent says he's likely to lose an eye as a result of the assault. 24-year-old Hadi Matar of New Jersey was restrained by audience members, arrested, arraigned on Saturday, pled not guilty to charges of attempted murder and assault with a deadly weapon. Prosecutors have not yet established a motive for the attack. Salman Rushdie is one of the most highly acclaimed writers in the world, forced into hiding and lived underground for many years after the late Ayatollah Khomeini of Iran issued a fatwa in 1989, calling on Muslims to assassinate Rushdie over his book, The Satanic Verses, the novel portraying the Quran in an unconventional light, modeling one of its main characters on the Muslim prophet Muhammad. Um, the fatwa was finally lifted by the Iranian president in 1998. Salman Rushdie is also former president of PEN America, which supports persecuted writers worldwide. We end today's show with Salman Rushdie in his own words in a rare speech he gave in 2004 on the freedom of expression at an event hosted by PEN America. Terrorism does exist. In this city of all cities, we know that. Uh, we know what it exists, what it exists to do, what it has done, what it tries to do. We know that it exists and must be fought. I don't think any, any of us would question that. How we fight it, in my view, is going to be the great civilizational test of our time. Um, will we become our enemy or not? Will we become repressive as our enemy is repressive? Will we become intolerant as our enemy is intolerant? Or will we not? Will we fight with different weapons? Weapons of openness and acceptance and seeking to increase the dialogue between peoples rather than decrease it. Um, this is a big test 
Will we become, you could say, the suits of armor that our fear makes us put on? Or will we not? It seems to us in Penn, to many of us in the last months, that we are not passing this test very well at present. And that there are serious reasons to say that there is a crisis in this country of civil liberties, freedom of speech, and human rights of exactly the kind that Penn has spent over 80 years protesting about when it happens in other countries. Um, it, exactly the things that, or, or not exactly, because nothing, no parallel is ever exact, but the kind of things that we have tried to highlight, whether, whether it was in Cuba or Burma or Iran or China, those sorts of problems are beginning to crop up here. Problems of what it is possible to say without being in trouble. What it is possible to have access to the information media to talk about. Uh, the terms in which it is possible to talk about these things when one does have access to the news media. Uh, the way in which the government is becoming increasingly intrusive into areas of our lives which the government has no business to go into. What books we read, what shops we go to, what books we borrow from universities. What do we think about? That is, you know, this gets very close to the thought police and is something which is not acceptable in a free society. That's Salman Rushdie speaking in 2004. He concluded the evening by reading from the works of others. And finally, from former president of Penn, Norman Mailer. Uh, he sent us the briefest contribution um, of, of anybody, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, from John Dos Passos in USA. All right, then. We are two nations. However, I also wanted to read from... <laughs> um, from what Norman said in the interview that is in the current issue of the New York magazine, uh, in a conversation with his son. And this is how it ends. Norman writes, or says, wisdom is ready to reach us from the most unexpected quarters. Here I quote from a man who became wise a little too late in life. Naturally, the common people don't want war. But after all, it is the leaders of a country who determine the policy. And it is always a simple matter to drag the people along, whether it is a democracy or a fascist dictatorship or a parliament or a communist dictatorship. Voice or no voice, the people can always be brought to the bidding of the leaders. This is easy. All you have to do is tell them that they are being attacked and denounce the pacifists for lack of patriotism and exposing the country to danger. It works the same in every country. That was Hermann Goering speaking at the Nuremberg trials after World War II. It is one thing to be forewarned. Will we ever be forearmed? Thank you. That's renowned Indian-British author Salman Rushdie speaking in 2004 at a Pen American Center event at Cooper Union in New York. On Friday, he was stabbed at least 10 times. He is now in critical condition after that assassination attempt. That does it for our show. I am Amy Goodman. Stay safe.